Greg, you told me this guy was a poet. Well, well I, I, can, <laughs> I can be more than one thing, can't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm just asking. <laughs> I, was, I was just telling Greg before you came on, I said as I was sitting down, it was either Saturday or Sunday, um, you know, just prepping. And I told him, it was like, back to my Q107 days, just listening to like classic rock. I said, oh, this guy's coming out and we're talking to him. So I'm, I'm very excited to Good. speak with you. Thank you so much for giving us, yes. giving us your time. You're welcome, gentlemen. I'm happy to be here. Now, is that your background or is that like a background? No, this is, this is, my, this is my guitar room. I'll show you. Like, oh, jeez. Uh, yeah. Wow. So it starts, nice. starts there and it goes all the way around to there. And then there's also underneath them, you can see oh, wow. the axe. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So like yeah. some of them are like over here, you can see there's uh that's the tellies and the Les Pauls, you know, so for rock and there's a double neck there and then a couple of bases. And then, um, uh, but I had an endorsement deal with Yamaha for years. And so that's what some of these really nice arch tops are. And now oh, I have a deal. Nice. Uh, I, I work with the Godam people. I have a, there's a Canadian company now that makes guitars as good as anybody, uh, you know, maybe better. And oh, so, wow. um, yeah, so I have a relationship with them now, but um, I've had a, a long and obviously fairly fruitful kind of uh, life as a musician before I became a poet. <laughs> very nice. That is very nice. That's, I was going to say, that's a lot of guitars, but then I, I remember listening to uh, Randy Bachman and he's like, I, he's got hundreds, if not thousands. Yeah. Yeah. Of guitars. He, 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 I think he actually pays like one of the guys that maybe, road manages or, or is a roadie form or but also like he's kind of a curator for his collection. I, oh, I did a gig that was like a, one of those uh, uh, cruise ship things and Randy was on it and we were sitting in the, at the airport together with his guys. And there was this one guy and he was talking guitars and he was going, well, you know, I curate Randy's collection. I go, uh, a, a curator. He goes, yeah, yeah. Like somebody's got to handle this because the guitars are constantly coming and going. And there was recently the story in the paper about Randy's, you know, uh, uh, 60, 6120 Gretsch that he'd had in 1957 or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And they tra tracked it down and he got it back. So long lost. Yeah. yeah. But, but, you know, like Randy is a, uh, uh, I, I heard a story about him that, that he had like the world's greatest collection of Gretsch guitars. And he'd also bought, John Entwistle's collection, which was considered to be one of the greatest collections of Gretsch guitars. And then at a certain point, Randy sold it back to the Gretsch company. They were going to do their own museum in Nashville or someplace. And, and then Randy, Randy made a deal. And, and that's, that strikes me that that would be, yeah, that's Randy. That's <laughs> hilarious. Sell them back their own guitars. <laughs> do you, do you have a story like that, Rick, of, of a guitar that, meant so much to you that I don't know, it either went missing or, or it got wrecked or anything like that. I, you know what, this is like kiss of death, but I, you know, I have never <laughs> had a guitar. I've never had a guitar stolen in my whole life. I've had a couple that got wrecked, you know, fell off mm -hmm. stages and had a gear fall on them or whatever, but I never had any, I never lost one or had one stolen and mm -hmm. all the years on airplanes and stuff. I mean, I, I was, I was uh, playing some stuff with a, outfit called jeans and classics out of London, Ontario, and they do orchestra shows. And the, uh, one of the guitar players in that thing had lost two guitars in a month, oh you know, like one that, you know, went onto an airplane and then never came back. And another one where they could see it on, on the, you know, the luggage cart driving across the tarmac and they saw the guitar fall off in a truck drive over. Oh, geez. <laughs> so they go, well, oh, there's another one gone. Yes. <laughs> so do you, when you fly, uh, I know you probably haven't flown much in the past two years, but yeah, not at all. I, I retired yeah. uh, January of 2019 and then COVID came and yeah. But did you, were you checking your guitar or would you carry it with you on, on the plane? A little of both. Like yeah. sometimes, you know, sometimes there's a lot of airlines that like Air Canada won't let you carry a, a guitar on unless, okay. you know, it's like they've got nobody on the flight kind of thing. Uh, it's, I loved to fly Porter down and into like places like Chicago and Boston. And yeah. I love to take that in New York because they would let you carry a guitar on, on board. So I could pack a, it's like a softer 
gig bag kind of thing and carry it with me. But most times I had to have it in a hard flight case and you have to check it. And you're just, you know, you're just taking your chances. Hi, the following podcast is brought to you by Radical Road Brewery, the best craft beer in the heart of Leslieville. Find them at 1177 Queen Street East. That's Radical Road Brewery. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Rick Emmett. Uh, I was in a rock band called Triumph for a long time, and uh, I'm now a, a poet. And I'm here to talk with Kareem and Greg. Uh, they have this show, which is called Welcome to the Music. And uh, so you're welcome to my music anytime. <laughs> and uh, But uh, I'd like to focus on my poetry for this episode. So you're welcome to my poetry. <laughs> so th- there you have it. And uh, here's the show. Welcome, 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 welcome. Thank you. So I have a question for you, and you're going to have to help me here. Um, 30 years, and we're going to focus a lot on the poetry, but I got to ask him, I have to ask you a music question. Do you, do you did, did you remember, were you ever at the, the after hours, I don't know whether there's a booze camp, but the after hours club above uh, the bamboo, where you had to come in from the, the hall, the uh, alleyway in the back? Only once, but but uh, Mike Levine and his wife Rosie, Rosie Triumph, yep. they, they used to go there a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. so, did you play there? Did you jam at all? No, I don't think so. Never at the bamboo. Okay. I don't. I don't so remember. There's, there's, my, there's my twenty twenty four year old fantasy because I know or, or memory because I know, I, know yeah. I went there and we were there with Mike and Rosie and and uh, who else? Uh, Lenny Stout and anyway. Oh yeah, and, yeah. And 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 I know Jeff Healy was jamming, and I swear my memory, my twenty five year old self thought you were jamming with Jeff, but maybe not. So I guess I'm no. Going. I I I jammed once with Healy uh, at his own place. So he had a place yeah. that was on Spadina yeah. somewhere in a basement. And I, yeah. play, I jammed there once with him. And he and I also jammed a couple of times at Toronto Music Awards shows or, you know, those kinds of things. And yeah. uh, there was one time where it was like, I think it was like the Jazz Awards or something at the Phoenix. And he and I played. And there was one time, a, it was like a white ribbon or yellow ribbon or, you know, some kind of ribbon thing. And yeah. it was an amazing night in my life. I got to play with both... Dominic Toriano, uh, who was a li- you know a living legend, but he had prostate cancer at the time, and Jeff, and the three of us jammed together. And then a couple of years later, they both passed away. And you know, wow, so, yeah. So wow. anyhow, but uh, yeah, I, I I loved Healy. He was he was a character that guy, and uh, yeah, he he didn't take any sh- stick from anybody. He was some, <laughs> yeah. He he had he had a. Um, a strong self-belief, which, you know, mm-hmm. I think given his circumstances, you have to have that, right? Yeah. But, uh, you know, I loved him. He, yeah. And he, what, what a guitar player. Like, oh, yeah. Such a- un- un- unbelievable. And I, and I may have seen, I may have been at one of those awards shows and seen you there, and I've sort of melded the, the yes. memories together. But That's uh, what happens with time, right? We, we yeah, take exactly. two or three <laughs> memories from it, and we just... Uh, my son-in-law was at a clothing store the other day, and a woman was working there, and he was wearing uh, the Triumph had just had the documentary come out at TIFF, and so he had one of the T-shirts that was like a TIFF Triumph T-shirt, and she says, oh, she says, you know, I, I once dated the singer from that band. We went to prom together. <laughs> and I said, and so he's telling me the story. I go, what did she look like? You know, he goes, no, her name was Diana. I go, oh, Diana, Diana, the cheerleader that broke my heart. Diana, <laughs> who did, I did not take her to prom. There's no way that happened. You know, I know I took the prom and it wasn't her. So it's like in her mind, she just taken two or three things and did it all. Yeah. Just kind of, yeah. 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 Anyway, thanks that for indulging me in that one. <laughs> You're welcome. Rick, congrats on the book. Thank you. Um, tell, tell me about like, what was the, I think I read somewhere someone told you you need to write a book of poetry. My son. Um, yeah. Well, he didn't say a book of poetry, but like my, we used to sit around at the dinner table and have conversations yeah. and I would read, you know, things you're not supposed to talk about at the dinner table, politics and religion. And, and I would start, you know, 
there's a there's a, a a section of the book that's called soapbox sermonettes, and you know I shoot my mouth off. I like to talk, you know, and my kids would always say like, "Oh, Dad, shut up, write a book," you know, "Shut up." <laughs> you know? So eventually, you know, when I got to this retirement COVID thing, it was like, okay. And the thing about poetry is, like, I'd always been a bit a lyricist and write writing songs. Yeah. Um, so it's it's not a huge leap, but but it's it's a it's a stretch because um, lyric writing is it, there's a a lot of discipline to it. it. You know, once you establish a, a a verse, then your other verses are going to have to match it for phrasing and and rhyme scheme, et cetera, et cetera. So there's okay. a lot of discipline involved in lyric writing. Poetry gives you a lot more um, leeway. And the other mm. thing was that I could become autobiographical, which in my old age, yeah. that was part of what I was doing. Uh, but you, you didn't have to necessarily, uh, as this ties to our, our previous conversation about how, you know, memory doesn't serve. Well, well poetry it doesn't matter if your facts aren't right. There's nobody going to fact check the stuff you're, you know, in a poem. So, so. You know, you're given a certain uh, amount of latitude, you know, which I enjoyed yeah. and I took advantage of that. Plus, there's there's beautiful things about poetry. Poetry has a, a lot of layers of mystery to it. You can have a narrative kind of mystery. You can have an emotional kind of mystery. Uh, and I learned a lot of this from Adam Saul, who's an established writer at ECW and had a book called How a Poem Moves that was mm-hmm. very influential on, on me going okay, I think I'll take a kick at this can and see if I can't do it. But uh, anyways, so I, I, you know, I liked that. I liked that I could be a little bit more elliptical, a little bit more illusory, metaphorical, you know, blah, blah, blah. All of those big four or five syllable words. One of, <laughs> one, of the, one of the themes in there that I wanted to sort of explore and see was, again, sort of past and present was, uh, is it who I am? No, sorry, who I was, who I am. Um. And just sort of explore that with you in terms of sort of that that theme within the book. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, part of it is is uh, you know when you get up. I'm, I mean, I'm 68 now, and I've been a, I'm a grandfather for the fourth time. You know, so I've entered into a phase of my life which is it's kind of like this is the beginning of the last chapter. You know, the last chunk, and you have to try to come to terms with that. Now, a lot of my past was based on, whoa, he's this, you know, guy wearing spandex pants and jumping around in a rock band. And, <laughs> you know, you know, like there's, yeah. there's a, there's a lot of luggage, a lot of baggage, you know, um, f- from being uh, this guy. And, you know, and then, oh, so now you're the guy that was in the walk of fame and you know, you're the guy that's, you know, doing the podcast with all your golden records on the wall, you know, like, yeah. uh, I don't take any of it that serious, that seriously, you know, like, uh, Huh. It's it's a huge part of 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 obviously my life and and but um, I always had a fairly I felt like realistic grasp of what this all was you know that it wasn't like there were classmates of mine in high school that went on to become like literally brain surgeons you know that they were that kind of it was a streaming thing and I was kind of like you know the 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 creative artistic guy, but there were people that they ended up being doctors and lawyers and, you know, and some people I have, one of my best friends from high school became uh, first a a provincial parliament, like an MPP and then an MP, you know, in Ottawa. So you see people that are, they're in walks of life that are maybe a little more serious than mine, you know, Sure. (laughs) which is not to say that, you know, I don't, I take my work seriously. I always take my work seriously, but mm-hmm. never really took myself all that seriously, you know. Huh. Do you, I guess it's, it's it's hard. Well, maybe it's not, but, you know, Greg and I have spoken about, Greg used to be a, a touring musician uh, back in, what was it, Greg, 80s and 90s. 80s. Um, and he's always said, I'm never going back. I said, not even for like a one-off, never. Not, not, not going back, haven't played in... X amount of years. Do, do you miss, do you miss the crowd? Uh, I had an experience last weekend where uh, a, a friend of mine, Dave Bedini, who runs the uh, yeah, West End Phoenix paper. Former, former he was guest. In a, 
Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. And uh, you know, I'm real statics, and and um, I've jammed with them a couple times before. So he asked if I would come and and be part of this thing that he was doing, uh, raising money for his paper. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I got and he had a there was a condition you had to play something that was from Live Aid. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So um, I said, okay, I'll play Sultans of Swing because Mark Knopfler had played on oh, the wow. Wembley, on the Wembley show, and you yeah, know yeah. I had played that. I had done a thing where I toured with orchestras and I played a bunch of classic rock stuff and it was a, it was a heavy night. I had to play like, like uh, Sultans of Swing and Stairway to Heaven. And it was like, it was a lot of you know, shit you had to learn that was, you know, it was tough. Um, so I thought, well, I, you know, that won't be too hard to resurrect that. And, I, you know, little did I realize, oh, I forgot. Like, first of all, there's like nine verses. And so it's like Bob Dylan <laughs> run on. Yeah. And you're not really singing. You're just kind of talking low, you know. And and that, uh, every line has like a guitar lick after it. And if you don't play the right licks, you know, somebody's going to complain bitterly that you, you know, you didn't learn it. <laughs> like, you can't just kind of jam bluesy licks. You, you know, you got to play the ones that Knopfler played. So anyways, uh, and I hadn't played for like two years, you know, so, and uh so I got up and it was like, man, it felt really weird at first. But then I yeah. kind of, it's like you settle in and you kind of get your sea legs. And then I'm going, oh, yeah. And then it's like I'm thinking, hey, I'm getting my mojo back. Because <laughs> 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 you just kind of feel it. it. Like I've been uh, such a ham bone for, you know, decades and decades of my life that you kind of go, oh, yeah. The ham bone juice. I, I remember how this goes. You know. <laughs> so I mean, um I I I think I have an addiction to the spotlight. I, I don't I, I I would never deny that that exists. But do I need it? The answer hmm. is no. I like I, I can it's almost like you know you're a reformed alcoholic and you go, Yeah, you know, yes, I am an alcoholic, I but I don't drink anymore, you know. I I let me tell you a quick little story. Uh, yeah. I had a, a relationship. It was at a, you know, arm's distance kind of thing with the great jazz guitar legend, Ed Bickert, the, the late great Ed Bickert. And um, Ed got to a point where his arthritis was just, he couldn't, he couldn't do it anymore. And about, I would say eight years after that, somebody did an in-depth interview with him and they said, Ed, do you miss it? And he went, nope, not, not a bit. Not a tiny bit, but don't need it. Don't care. And his daughter uh, got in touch with me at one point and said, he's not playing his, his guitar. I'm like, I'm worried about him. But when I talked to him, I, I realized no need to worry. Like he's yeah. perfectly happy. Yeah. In fact, he was able to kind of get a monkey off his back in a way that like, if you want to play at the level that Ed Bickert played at, you have to play several hours every day. You have to keep up that, those chops, you know, you have to have, and it, as you get older, your, your physical facilities are, are degenerating. Like there's just no, like I can't hit the high notes. I used to sing when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. I just can't, you know, and do I want to have to be learning repertoire and, and like I, keeping it current. And then I go, Nah, don't want it. So I understand when Greg says, ah, I don't like, I go, yeah, I don't, I don't need it. I can live without it. But as you can see, I, I clearly still have an addiction that, yeah. you know, to being creative and that's never going to go away. That's yeah. fair enough. Yeah, for sure. It's funny because you, when you, you mentioned it sort of as a recovering, in fact, I think on my Twitter bio, it says recovering 80s, 90s musician. <laughs> And it's like, oh, okay. and, and again, and I've, I've, I've like lived vicariously through my kids, you know, my, my son at 10 years old said, dad, I want to, you know, I think I want to play the drum. He played the piano. And then he said, I, I want to play the bass. So he, he saved up his money, went down to Steve, got him an Ibanez, started playing it. And he goes, I think I want to play drums. And he's just natural. Like, he's just like really natural at it. Right. And yeah. like, within six months, he's rocking Rage Against the Machine out on the drums. You know, and nice. so it's like, I love, I, I just, I started living vicariously through that. So. Yeah. Uh, and, and that thing, that, that gift for music is not the same thing as a gift for having a job as a musician. Because that's a whole uh, other kind of a discipline. Yeah. Uh, and, and then, you know, to build a career, that's like as if you were trying to, I don't know, build a, 
of, of Tim Horton's franchise. Like yeah. it's, it's a gig, it's, it's work. And, and work ethic is a different thing than the joy of playing just for the sake of making music. You know, mm-hmm. I, I often, I, I remember when I sang in the church choir and the school choir when I was a kid and how I loved it. It was just this really cool, great thing to be able to do, to be in with all these other people and you're making music together. And, you know, there's this harmony, you know, flowing through the air. It's this beautiful thing. And it's not the same thing as like, okay, it's Thursday. We're pulling into Spokane, you know, (laughs) unload the trucks, you know, like it's a whole, that's a whole different thing, you know? So anyhow. Yeah, no. I mean, you you talked about when you're when you were younger as a child, and I mean, one of the one of the poems in the book. Um, I will tell you that I was born on March fourth, nineteen sixty seven. I am the curse. I am the curse because when my daughter was coming, it was she. My my ex wife was pregnant with my daughter in ninety four. Okay, here we go. And that nope. Okay, so then my son was ninety five. Like okay, ninety five. Heading. Yep. This is going to be it. Nope. Because then it's the next Tilston son, right? No, right. So, so I really, uh, I, I really enjoyed reading "Go Leafs Go." I just thought, oh, yeah. you know, I, I don't know. I, David, can you talk a bit about sort of the history of that? And now, yeah, of- sure. I mean, uh, there was a friend. There's a friend of mine named Kevin Shea. He used to be the head of marketing for uh, Universal. And when I literally, when my Absolutely album came out, and that was would have been in 89. He and I went across the country together, flying in airplanes and staying in hotels as I was doing all the interviews at all the uh, FM stations and stuff. And uh, like Kevin, uh, he got when the music business, you know, imploded and, and um, you know, he eventually lost his job, but he landed as, first of all, he was working at the hockey hall of fame. And then he sort of became a guy that was writing books about, uh, the, the Smythe era of the Leafs, uh, old, Le- you know, George Armstrong and Dave Keon and, you know, just helping these guys write their biographies and things. And, and so Kevin's had this little sort of cottage industry of, of hockey books. And so he got in touch with me and he was doing a book called Voices of Blue and White. And he wanted just everybody from Rick Emmett and Larry Gowan to, you know, who knows what to to uh, be giving their memories of what it was like. So I wrote this prose piece for him uh, and gave it to him for his book. And then when I was putting the poetry book together, I thought, <laughs> you know, it's that, that prose is it's close to being poetic just because of what it's about. Yeah. So if I modify it just a tiny bit, uh, I think I can turn it into a kind of a, of a poem. So mm-hmm. Goalie's Go is about this uh, little boy, you know, that <laughs> very Canadian story, you know, um, playing ball hockey on the street when I was a kid. And we would do Foster Hewitt and, and, and his son Bill's play-by-play, uh, you know, while we were passing the ball around and making Johnny Bauer splits to make saves and all of this stuff. And, and um, my grandfather had made pretty good money in, in the uh, meat trucking business in Toronto. And uh, so he had dough and he, so he bought, season's tickets in the north end of the blues and Maple Leaf Gardens. And he died early, uh, had a heart attack. And, and uh, my grandmother had inherited these seats. She didn't go all the time. So my dad would get, we had, I had two brothers. So my dad would get three sets of tickets and take the kids. Like uh, we'd all get a chance to go. Now, when I was a kid, the, like the game, games would only be on Saturday nights and they only came on after the Juliet show. Like that the didn't even start to like nine o'clock. So you'd miss the whole first period and probably a little chunk of the second. And, and it was in black and white. There was no color TV yet when I was a kid. And oh man, this is probably making me seem so old. Like, <laughs> kids are at home going like, who is this dinosaur that can talk? <laughs> Anyhow. So, so, we go there and, and like, it's, it's brilliant color, you know, like it's this unbelievably amazing magic place, Maple Leaf Gardens, the, you know, the house that's that Con Smythe built. And, and um, anyways, the poem makes the loop from the, the little kid going there and being part of that thing to, you know, triumph in its uh, cockiness getting to play Maple Leaf Gardens concert bowl for the first time in 1978 
And, you know, I'm walking out on a stage in this building and thinking, oh, my God, you know, are we going to be able to sell enough seats? Are we going to be able to, you know, carry this? And, uh, you know, Michael Cole was the guy from CPI at the time. Yeah. And he thought we were way too cocky and like this was going to be a disaster. But, you know, we sold out and Michael bought us all Leafs jerseys. So we came back to the dressing room. And there were Leafs jerseys hanging. And I picked the one that was a Boreas Salming, 21, because he was like one of my favorite Leafs and, and at the time. So anyways, that, you know, that's, yeah. that's what that poem's about. That's awesome. Nice. You, you start off, Rick, um, in the book. Obviously, there's the, uh, the preface, uh, which is, I guess, the, the reason or, or, or how you came about to, to writing the book. But the first poem is this, The Search is Sacred. Is is there a reason that you picked this to be the opening poem? Um, I think, the, like, I had uh, some beta readers to help me out, uh, organize my thinking and, and what it was that I was doing early on. One was my cousin out on the West Coast, Nancy Wood, and uh, a novelist who lives in Bristol, England right now, a family friend, Jane Christmas. And so these ladies read my stuff, and sometimes they would go like, yeah, I'm not sure what you're driving at here, you know? Uh, and I went, okay. So what I did was I organized the stuff, not into chapters, but into sections. Yeah. And so the first section of the book uh, was sort of the stuff that was like the humanities. It was kind of like things that were about religion and, and, and uh, just sort of the way that I viewed uh you know, the humanity, psychology, sociology, you know, that kind of stuff. So uh, the search is sacred is really, and again, this is autobiographical stuff. Yeah. For me, I, like, there's not a lot that I hold sacred. There, There's not like some folks might say, you know, I'm, you know, you can't, I'm sorry, you can't slaughter that cow. Like, that's not what we do, you know, or I'm sorry, you can't eat fish on Friday. You know, I'm, like, if you want to be sacred, we have these rules. And I go, well, I'm sorry, I, I don't buy into a lot of your sacred rules. I, I just don't, you know, and I think they give a lot of problems to humanity in the end. Uh, they become things that divide us instead of bring us together. So what does bring us together? And I think it's the search for something sacred. You know, huh. that, which is to say, writing, uh, making music, um, trying to be creative, like I think, uh, 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 you know, a rocket scientist in his lab is searching for something. And that's a sacred task. What he's mm. doing really matters, you know. Um, but, you know, whether or not, um, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I could go off on a tangent here. I will read the book, folks. <laughs> Don't give him too much. Yeah. Well, let, let me if may, maybe we continue that way with with this question because what the yeah. Let me ask you this: what, what are you like? What do you consider yourself searching for? What are you searching for yourself, Rick? Um. Yeah. Well, maybe I'm kind of like Bono, you know, I'm, I'm still searching and, and <laughs> I haven't found what I'm looking for. Um, I, I, I'm always, uh, I used to tell my students at the college and I taught at Humber for, you know, over two decades and, and, and I taught music business and then I taught songwriting. Um, and, and I used to say, if you're born with a kind of a artist's spirit, you're really always worried about the horizon. You're looking there and you're going, Oh, I wonder, I wonder what's coming. I, I wonder what's just mm. open, what's beyond there. And even if you have tremendous success and you have gold records and, and you've done great and you're still kind of going, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, but what, what's, what's that? <laughs> what's next? And, and I really think that um, that's sort of who I am, that I'm always, I'm never going to be, truly satisfied. Um, and you know, let me put this in real simple, plain terms. You know, um, when, when, uh, when my kids were being born, I was starting mm -hmm. to feel like, I don't think I can be in this rock band anymore triumph because it just eats up to way too many big chunks of my life. And I need to be a father and a husband 
for my family, this is much more important to me, you know? Mm. So, but you know, my kids are all in their thirties now and I'm a grandfather. And now I look at these grandkids and I go, Oh yeah. So this is how this works. <laughs> you know, like oh. this is kind of how life ends up. You, the horizon is in those kids now, you know, and, and, uh, and my own kids, I'm going, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I mean, I love, I love them, but they, you know, they have to sort of fend for themselves now and take care of themselves, you know. So, yeah. but, but the grandkids, it's like I go, no, no, this, that's what this. So maybe that shows you what my priorities are and sort of how I'm wired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, you do sort of give a give a hint um, in in the gender, strangers, foreigners, and lovers. You you end off that with. I am never so complete as when I am fully engaged, surrendered, willingly committed in the service of others. Yes. But, that, uh, you know. but yes, and certainly for family, that's true. But also, you know, uh, I was always completely happy to volunteer to be on a curriculum committee at the college. I, I liked yeah. it. So there's some people who wouldn't be caught dead and they would say, well, you can bill for your time. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, no, this is great. This is like the, the, the judge gave me this court appointed uh, community service. <laughs> this is a community service that I love, that I love to do. Like, I like it. I used to love the moment at the end of the night, finish this show, you know, stand up, everybody's applauding into the encore, kiss the neck of my guitar and, you know, bow and think, yeah, I've just been in service to these people. I don't, it's nice that I'm getting a paycheck. I love that. That's, a, you know, I'm not going to say no to the money. Uh, yeah. But I also just love the fact that I was able to do this thing creatively that was so fulfilling for these folks. And that was to be at their service, you know, in yeah. their service. Yeah. Rick, when you, when you got into teaching, um, what did you, you start, you said you started off teaching uh, the business of music. Yep. Um, what did you want your students to know? Cause I'm guessing there was stuff you said, Oh, I can't wait to tell them about all of these things. <laughs> you know, it's not just, you know, fun playing a guitar or banging on the drums. They need to, you know, have something up here. So I, I'm curious, what was it about, you know, what did you want to teach them when you first started? Well, I wanted them to understand the practical realities of what a career was going to be like. And I mean, the first day uh, I would write on the board um, a, a Van Morrison quote, you know, uh, music is spiritual. The music business is not. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And uh, there was another <laughs> one that I liked, too. And I can't, well, there, there was one where, uh, oh, I'm never going to remember it now, but it was like, um, who was the guy that wrote for Rolling Stone and he had those cigarette and the cigarette holder and uh, and he wrote Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Which, oh yeah, the, the movie uh, then, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm trying to remember his name now. And he, anyways, oh. he, there was a quote where it was it was something along the lines of you know the music business is a long plastic hallway full of thieves and pimps and you know blah 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 blah. Anyways, there's also a bad side. and i I would read that to them and i would say like the the music business is is a business of mutual exploitation and you have to understand that that there's going to be guys that are businessmen and you are just a widget to them you're just you know um you're just meat and and that's how that's going to work and you have to know that that's the way that it works and accept that you have to be perfectly willing to go no no i get that it's, a, it's about money you know and mm. um and 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 that would be you know the first lesson the the second thing i would say is and i you know in those class like when i started music business was just an option that they could take in their third year so i'd have maybe 35 40 people in the room right eventually the, the whole uh, uh school had to take it so now there was oh, wow. you know i would have two classes and there would be be like 120 in each class. Um, eventually, I started sharing <laughs> the workload with somebody because that's a hell of a lot of marking and grading, gentlemen. Oh, like, yeah. anyway, so um, yeah. Uh, so I would say to them, you know, um, here we are in, in this classroom. There's 40 of us. 
And I hate to tell you, but Statistics Canada will tell you, there's only going to be one and a half of you that are going to end up having a job in the music business. That's the statistics. Wow. And I said, you're here at Humber College, which is, you know, uh, uh, it's not even like McGill or U of T programs where they're training classical musicians to be in, in that, you know, p- part of the business. And that's where the, a lot of the statistics are coming from. Not you guys. Your odds are even worse. I hate to tell you. And the, the, the one of you that might end up having a job, you're probably going to be working for a music publisher. Or you're going to be working as a manager of a Long and McQuaid store. It's not going to be the music business career you think you're going to have. But there will be one of you every three classes that is going to have a music business career. Like you're going to, you're going to be in the music business as a musician. Yeah. And I said, now I know what every one of you was thinking. I'm going to be that guy. Because, <laughs> wow. you know, the, the ambition is high. Of course. The reality, the practical reality of it is that your your actual chops as a business person, as an entrepreneur, are not going to match your this, this ambition. You're, you're dreaming a pipe dream, you know, and they sadly realize it over the next four or five years of their lives. They get to the point where they go, well, it's not, not for me. I guess I'm going to take that job as a bookkeeper with my Uncle Louie. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Wow. You, you, you taught for a while. You, you, you left uh, in 2019, right? Yeah. Um, well, I, I actually left the teaching the year before that. I didn't okay. renew my contract. Um, uh, and then I, you know, played out that fall uh, of gigs and then played uh, Hughes Room in Toronto in January. Uh, it was the last gig that I played live, uh, you know, where mm-hmm. I booked a gig and, you know, played my own repertoire and that sort of thing. I, I'll, I'll still go and sit in from time to time and do things, but sure. you know, I'm, I'm never going to book my own shows again, but is Hughes room still up and running? You guys are going to get to a question yeah. la- later on where you're going to ask yeah, me, we're, about, we're, but we're going to get there. But, I, but yeah. what I wanted to get at Rick was the stuff that you started teaching. And then when you stopped teaching a few years ago, like so much changed in the music industry, so much changed about how you make money, in the music industry. Yeah. Well, uh, especially with the advent of streaming. I mean, just a huge disruptor or a huge opportunity, depending upon, you know, how you look at things. Yes. But, um, what, what was the biggest change in terms of what you had to teach your students, or at least what you had to make them aware of? Yeah. Well, I mean, as I said earlier, like I started out teaching music business, but I, that's not how I ended up. I, I taught the music business course for about, I don't know, 13, 14 years. And then eventually mm. I went to the people there and I said, I'm not qualified to teach this anymore. The music business that I knew that, you know, That's that right. I, that I know it no longer exists like record companies that, and, and radio making determinations as to, you know, what becomes popular and successful, you know, I mean, even MTV had come and gone, you know what I mean? In a That's sense, right. it, it was not really what it was. And so I said, you need to find younger guys that, that have, you know, started their own indie labels and done their own thing. And uh, people that understand about getting licensing into Dawson's Creek, you know, blah, 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 these kinds of things. Like, I, it's, it's not what I did. I, I, I'm, I'm aware of it, but I can't teach it because I don't really I don't really know it, you know. Yeah. Um and in, in any case, I had morphed the, the course that I taught to become something that was more about entrepreneurial spirit, uh, you know, learning the ins and outs of just standard business. What, what does a, a financial statement look like? You know, what does a balance sheet look like? Profit and loss, these kinds of, you know, which, of course, <laughs> from a nuts and bolts thing, it's important. But, you know, in a music. Of course, people are going, oh, are you kidding me? This is horrible, you know. Um, yeah. But, you know, uh, there are certain fundamental things you can teach. Uh, like, uh, I, I, there's one, have you guys ever heard of a, a Toronto band called, like, they were originally called Ginger Ale and the Mono Whales. I think they're just called the Mono Whales now. Mono Whales, yeah, I love front, Mono Whales. Okay, so their front person is Sally, yeah, uh, yeah. Sal, Sally Shar, and uh, she was in my business class. And the, 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 the music director had uh, 
warned me. He said, hey, we don't know what to do with this girl. Like, you know, she's, mm. a, she's a, she's something and a, and a half. <laughs> like, so, but uh, we're going to give her to you. And because she flunked out the first semester of this thing. And so I, I, she was in my class. She asked good questions when she was paying attention. <laughs> but, you know, there were moments where it was like, yeah, clearly she's gone off on a tangent. You know, So I said to her, Sally, I want you to go see the David Bowie exhibit that's at the uh, down. And I want you to really absorb that. And then I want you to go to this government website. And I want you to read about how you do a marketing plan. And then I want you to do a marketing plan for your band based on what you learned from David Bowie, applying it to yourself and then, you know, uh, from this marketing, business marketing plan. And so I said, don't come to my class. I don't care. You don't have to do any assignments in the term. I don't care. Just final assignment. Give me a marketing plan for your band. And when she gave it to me, I went through it and I went, this is worth over 90. Like I gave her 92 or wow. 93 or something. Because it was, it was, um, because it, it was about her. <laughs> so she, mm-hmm. she could really sink her teeth into that, you know, and it was a it was a really great piece of work, and the thing is, I didn't need to know about the music business to be able to see and teach that and make that happen. But you know, that's not in every case, so that was why I had sort of you know backed out and said, oh, "Let me teach songwriting." Now, songwriting is something I you know I, I know about that. And yeah, that's never going to change. That's great. And speaking of tangents, I have a tangent I have to ask you. How 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 do you get involved in a project that includes? Meatloaf, Brian May, and Tangerine Dream. <laughs> um, okay, well, Triumph—it's Triumph's locus was was Metalworks, and so you had recording things that would be coming and going, and and different artists and musicians that would, and so projects would pop up from time to time, yeah. and that was a special Olympics thing. Yeah. And there were some oh. guys that were co-writers, and they were in there, and they were doing something, and it was like, hey, Rick. You know, you want to help us co-write this thing for the Special Olympics? And I went, yeah, all right, you know. And so that's, they sucked me into that. And I mean, I never met Brian May or, or Meatloaf or any of those people. That, you know, they were, that was, this was oh, the beginnings okay. of a world where studios were starting, you know, Pro Tools and that sort of thing hadn't started to happen yet. But there was now this thing where you'd somebody be working in this studio and somebody, and they, they, you know, tapes would fly around and then, you know, there would be these uh, collaborations that would occur. So, yeah, yeah. but that was special Olympics. It was a That's fantastic. Yeah, no, I just, I, I, I saw that on, you know, I was doing some research, digging back and I went, that's a really interesting, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really oh, interesting. yeah. Even Tangerine <laughs> Dream. And I was like, what? Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, that would be one of those things where somebody's writing a theme song that's going to be, you know, this is the song, but somebody's also writing the music that's going to be for the opening ceremonies and, oh, somebody's writing the music that's going to be for the, you know, so yeah, Tangerine Dream was probably in there doing some sort of weird soundscaping (laughs) thing for people to be dancing in the middle. middle. Yeah, yeah. 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 Rick, we, we have a segment called Lost Venues. Uh, where we ask our guests to share share stories or, or, or a nice story about uh, a venue they played in uh, that is lost, does not exist anymore. So we're wondering if you have a story about a lost venue that uh, is near and dear to your heart. I have dozens because I'm an old fart. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I've been around for a long, long time. Uh, the, the first one that pops to mind, but I'm, I'm going to extrapolate out of this, but um, – I, every year I would go back to Philadelphia and play this club called the Tin Angel. And it was uh, in the sort of the uh, bar district of old Philly. And uh, I loved it. It was like, you know, the way Toronto had the Alma Combo or, 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 or Hughes room, like just a room that had been around forever. And that had been around really forever. The guy that owned it and booked it had been part of the whole folk scene when it was like uh Pete Seeger and Peter Paul and Mary and that kind of thing. Wow. And, and the, the, they'd done very little to renovate the place uh, over the course of time. But I played there 12 years running. I went back there every winter and played and it, it closed and they yeah. moved it. And then COVID came and, and, you know, but so I think there maybe is still a 10 angel, but it's not the one that, that I used to go and play. 
which was a, it was like there was a restaurant on the main floor and then there was this long, narrow room. The stage was only about 10 by eight, you know, uh, and it was mostly for folkies, but they would put little indie bands on there too and stuff. But so I loved that place and it, it's gone and that sort of breaks my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can now sort of extrapolate this up and out. I mean, Triumph played Maple Leaf Gardens and it's no longer a concert venue. I played Joe Louis Arena in Detroit and that building got knocked down. You know, Triumph played the Nassau Coliseum on Long Island the night after the New York Islanders won the Stanley Cup. And there were people, fans of the Islanders that had stayed in the parking lot drinking and come to the Triumph show. Like two nights in a row at the Nassau Coliseum. I want you to imagine what that building smelled like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because of the, the sweat and the vomit and the urine and the, you know, just crazy. But, um, yeah, so none of those places exist anymore. But, you know, they're, they're still, I have fond feelings in my, you know, within myself. So, yeah. yeah, Absolutely. That is awesome. That that was really really fun. Thank you so much for sharing that, um, Rick. We're, we're we're closing in on on dinner time. Everyone wants to get back and and, and finish off uh, some uh, some dead turkey. Um, <laughs> you you've been kind enough to 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 offer uh, a, a song. Sure. Um, so you don't want so me to read a poem? poem? You you want me to play? We're a gonna song we're gonna we're gonna end off with a poem as well. Oh, okay. All right. So let me yeah get, yeah. Now let me get my guitar here. The only thing I have yeah. with this is I got to have these earphones in. I used to do these without earphones, earbuds. And then at one point, somebody said to me, Rick, you know, if you do, the audio is a lot better. And I went, really? So then I had to start using these things. I'm not used awesome. to these. I'm old school. Um, Greg, is, is there anything that we need to know about the music? I think we're good. We're good. Can you okay. guys, can you hear the guitar all right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want okay. to intro the song? Yeah. Uh, this is a, like uh, in the um, poetry book, there were some things that were not poems. They were clearly as they were developing. I was going, this is a lyric. You know, I might as well finish it as a lyric and then I'll write some music. And then when I do the audio book for, for this, I'll I'll record a couple of tunes. And then, in fact, I, I put some little jazz guitar things as segues from section to section too, because, you know, I mean, playing guitar and making music, it's, it's in my blood. So, you know, um, it's, it's not a huge stretch. Um, yeah. So this is a tune, um, that was just about, um, what, uh, music sort of means to me, what songs are about. And I was trying to write something that was like, as folky as I could get, like a, like an old Pete Seeger, uh, Bob Dylan-y kind of a this land is your land kind of folk song. So <laughs> that's what this is. And it's called uh, World of Song. Okay. Awesome.
so much rick that was that was, that was fantastic hey on the back of your t-shirt greg does it say canadian is a beer no it's um <laughs> do you know dine do you know dine alone records no uh dine alone's like uh alexis on fire and oh yeah okay so yes uh, I do dallas know. is on anyway and yeah. so it's 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 actually it's something that that uh, dine alone put out it's cool back when those bands are starting to make it big down in the U.S. and like, yeah. <laughs> but I think, well, but I also think of this. I think of this also in the '90s, right when like <clears throat> Sloan was getting signed by Geffen, and it's like all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's this Canadian sound. It's like we're gonna yeah. get hot. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, no, I mean there, we had that too back in the yeah. day. There was, you know, a Rush had obviously broken down a lot of uh, boundaries for us, but but uh, you know we never thought about necessarily trying to be canadian we just wanted to be a touring yeah. band in the united states you know with a with a u.s record deal because if you wanted to be big in the world that the united states was like an 87 percent of the world market kind of yeah. thing you know canada was like three percent of the world market like everybody treated canada like a branch plant yeah. anyhow yeah. <laughs> yeah i hear you i hear you rick um do you have uh, a poem you'd like to to read? I, to I have. I've, I've selected one. Yes. And, awesome. Uh, which which one is it? Uh, there's a series of uh, four poems in the middle of the book. Uh, it's not the heart of the book. There's two poems about my brother Russell who passed away. To me, that's the heart of the book. Uh, mm. But I would never attempt to read those publicly. I would end up crying. Uh, but. There's a series where it starts with one called Self-Invention, which is the, the first poem. And then there's Reinvention 2, Reinvention 3, and, and the final one. So I'm going to read the Reinvention 3 because it's the one that's more about, you know, the, the rock star baggage part of my life. Ah, okay. Awesome. So <clears throat> let me get ready. Okay. <laughs> Reinvention 3. Of my own free will, I invented the man-child, a rocket in cartoon costumes. And so what if I did? Damned, because I did. Damned if I didn't. Assist in the production of the funhouse of smoke and mirrors, inside the grand houses of cards that got built up all around. Meanwhile, I proudly scrawled on the dotted line, my name, my likeness, my ass. Signed, corporate sealed and delivered. Property belonging to multi-purpose vertically and horizontally integrated business enterprises. Anything I might do or affix in any form was a potential asset of the brands and the logos and the divisional management suits in those surrounding office buildings of cards. Of my own free will, I was owned. And I've had to own that. To the front of house, I was a barking seal, an organ grinder's monkey, a clawless, clueless, toothless tiger, leaping around on platforms at the crack of a whip, the poke of a chair, 
Inside the house, backstage, I was the junior partner who got outvoted on things that really mattered and got managed and manipulated into much of the rest. Why did I let it happen? What went to motivation, Your Honor? That higher purpose was to build a marriage, a family, a real life with the woman I love. I wanted to manufacture the wind that would fill our sails, the multiplying provisions of a distinct church and state. Alas, eventually there was no destiny, no fate that I felt I could call my own. The artist I had become was not something that the human being inside me could live with. The machine had lost whatever naive ghost of a soul it might have had. For me, the funhouse was empty. It did not take as much courage to walk away as it had been costing me humanity, sanity, to stay. Q reinvention part four. And that's the nice. end of that one. Nice. That's great. That, that was awesome. That's another reinvention, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It definitely, it definitely is. Rick, um, this has been uh, such a pleasure to, to have you on, uh, on our show Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Um, we've only literally touched like this much of, of what Greg and I wanted to talk to you about. <laughs> so uh, you don't have to, but I'm hoping that once we can go back into studio that you'll agree to come in and, and we can, we can be, continue this conversation. I'd be happy to do it. Yeah, sure. It was, this has been fun and I'd love to do it. Yeah. Anytime. We, we, normally, awesome. we normally record out of uh, Radical Road, which is on Queen Street at Jones. So uh, once oh, yeah. we can get back in, in the club or in the bar and uh, sit down and have a chat face to face, it would be awesome. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I look forward that to that. Okay. Rick, before we let you go, where can people go to, to get your book? Where can people go to, to find out more about what you're up to these days? Okay. Well, ECW is, is a, you know, ECW Press is a small Canadian press. And so what they try to do is, is convince people, you know, go to your local bookstores and, you know, buy a hard copy from a local bookseller so that bookstores don't disappear. And that's a really important thing. Um, but, you know, you can't fight City Hall and, you know, you can get it on Amazon and get it delivered to your door, you know, uh, so you can find it on Amazon. Um, and, you know, like they, they have the at Indigo and, and large chains and stuff too, but um, yeah, uh, and of course there's an audio book which is a whole different experience mm. than mm. because just as you heard me read there, like I I spent a couple of days in the studio. I, I had no idea how hard it was to, to <laughs> like to, to you know listen to your own takes yeah. back and go. Oh, that sucks. That's terrible. No, I, I got to redo that. You know, <laughs> it was it was a lot of work, but but. Um, I like to recommend to folks do both, like get the book, but also experience the audio book because, um, and you know, folks are out now because of COVID with their earbuds and they're out walking and, and audio books have become something that is as standard as anything else, but nothing replaces having that thing in your hand and being able to yeah. have it on a shelf. And then three months from now, you can revisit it. You know, a year from now you can go back and have another look because poems have that, they're like an onion, right? You peel the layers and then all of a sudden you, where did the onion go? There's, there's nothing but onion skin all around. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but po poems have that ability to, to uh, you know, shape shift and morph and stuff. So yeah. anyways, awesome. thank you. Thanks, gents. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Rick. Enjoy. Have a great evening. Thank you so much. All right. Same to you guys. <laughs> 